Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. We welcome our visitors, and we do have several, and we want you to feel, feel welcome and uh, come and be with us every opportunity that you have. Thank you, Matt, for those songs, and they do tie in beautifully with uh, our lesson this morning. Uh, last month, um, on one particular Sunday, uh, Tucker spoke about foundations of faith, foundations of faith. And this is a topic we want to address once a month about the foundations for our faith. Um, there are many principles and truths that make up the foundation of our faith, but there are some key elements that make Christianity what it is. In fact, Tucker shared this quote from Aaron Armstrong. The fundamentals of the faith are the defining beliefs that make Christians Christian. The beliefs that if we were to set aside, we would no longer be recognizably Christian. In fact, uh, Dr. Scott Adair has developed what he called the seven essential elements of the faith. And I was interested in studying how he um, came up with this list of seven essentials. He went through the book of Acts and primarily looked at the speeches, the sermons in the book of Acts, and found these themes that were presented uh, in each of these lessons. And those are listed before you. Uh, Jesus is Lord. There's one God. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The church is the bride of Christ. There's forgiveness of sins through Jesus. The receiving of the Holy Spirit and hope, the hope of resurrection uh, through Jesus. Seven essential elements. If you look through the book of Acts, read through it and study the sermons you'll see these themes over and over. So I think it's a great list of foundations for our faith. There are many other aspects, principles, truths presented in the Word, but here is, here's the foundational concepts. And we want to sp spend some time discussing these, reminding these things um, to you. Let's notice the first of these seven foundational truths. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Peter Forsyth was right when he said the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. But its master. It, human nature would probably try to switch that. That we want to try to find our freedom, but it's really about finding our master. I'm going to quote again from the philosopher Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's, that's a truth. We are going to serve someone or something. Each of us has a throne in our hearts, and on that throne we place the governing principle of our lives. And so there's a battle about who is going to or what is going to occupy the throne of our hearts. The greatest rival to the, to the intended throne occupant, Jesus, the greatest rival is self. And so there's this constant struggle within us. And once we profess Christ, once we obey the gospel and place Jesus on the throne of our hearts, the battle continues. That self-will enters back in, and so there's this constant struggle. But we choose who's going to occupy the throne of our hearts. And we need to be reminded, that throne, there's only room for one occupant, 
and the appropriate, the deserving, the rightful person to occupy that throne is none other than Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That statement we need to understand is a truth. It's a foundational truth. Jesus is Lord. Notice we don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. He's already Lord, whether we make Him the Lord of our lives or not. For example, Colossians chapter 1, we find this beautiful description of Jesus. And notice what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that idea is He reigns over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, or all things hold together. He holds the universe together because He is Lord. He's Lord over creation. Again, we don't make Him Lord. He is already Lord. But we must acknowledge His Lordship and submit our lives to Him as Lord. Here's a definition of the Lordship of Christ by Owen Cosgrove. The Lordship of Christ is the daily submission and surrender of our entire self to the authority and leadership of Jesus Christ, recognizing His sovereign right to rule preeminently over us. It's a matter of we're going to serve somebody, so whom are we going to serve? The Lordship of Christ is a way of affirming that not only is Jesus Lord over all creation, but we are acknowledging His Lordship over our own lives. And it really means the abdication of self from the throne of our hearts, and we enthrone Christ as Lord over our own lives. You see, many want Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. We want Him to, to care, carry our sins, to, to reconcile us to God. But we struggle with submitting our lives from henceforth uh, to His Lordship. And though many want Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord, it doesn't work that way. In order for Christ to be our Savior, He must be our Lord. So what does it mean then to yield to Christ as Lord? Let me suggest some things that are involved in submitting our lives to Christ. It means submission of every area of our lives. Of every area of our lives. I found this pie chart that uh, breaks our lives down into 12 different segments. And as you look at that list, money, possessions, career, time, etc., 12 parts of our lives, there's even one at the bottom called other. In every area of, of our lives, we must submit to the Lordship of Jesus. I thought of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Notice the next part. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In every aspect of your life, we submit it to the Lordship 
of Jesus. Let's talk about that segment called other. This may represent an aspect of our lives where we struggle especially in, in establishing that Jesus is Lord over that part of our lives. Maybe there's an area in our life when, where there is that struggle. And we think it's, okay, he's the Lord of my possessions. I get that. It's not that I own anything. The Lord owns it all. Or, or he's the Lord of my career. And that means that I've got to live as, as Jesus, as my Lord, even when I'm at work. It's not just something that I do on Sundays, but it's something I do throughout the week. And we, we may be okay with all that, but there may be an area in our lives where we say, yes, Jesus is Lord, but in this one area, I struggle. I want to maintain control. And I know what the Lord says about this, but this is what I want to do. Jesus is to be Lord over all aspects of our lives. S.M. Zwimmer is noted for this well-known comment, unless Jesus is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Lordship, the Lordship of Christ pertains to every aspect of our lives. Let me make that pie chart smaller to cover two aspects of our lives. How about this? Our private life and our public life. And he's to be Lord over all. Our private life, that which no one else really knows about. It, it involves who we are alone in our own minds and uh, when, we're, when no one else is around, how we think and what we do in our private lives. Jesus is to be Lord over our private life. In fact, that's where it begins. That's where it begins. When we make him Lord over even that aspect of life that no one else sees. Keep your heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The things that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do originate in our hearts, in our minds. And Jesus is to be Lord over that private uh, part of our lives. Just as he's to be Lord over our public life. This involves our eyes, our ears, our lips, our hands, our entire body. What we say, what we hear, where we go, what we do, wherever we go and whatever we do, we're to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of my life. Whether we're at home, at work, at school, wherever we are, in the church building, wherever we are, Jesus is Lord of my life. Number two, Yielding to Christ as Lord means acknowledging His ownership. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about is how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, when we obey the gospel, when we're baptized into Christ as penitent believers, He purchases us. Purchases us. We, are now, we now belong to Him. There are many songs, I think, that are appropriate to sing after a person is baptized into Christ. 
but one that I think is extremely appropriate is a simple song that says, I am mine no more. I've been bought with blood. I am mine no more. And acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord of our lives means that it's no longer what, what I want, what I think, what matters most. is what does the Lord think? What does the Lord want me to do? What has he instructed me to do through his word? So I acknowledge that he owns my life. And when we say that and it's a master-slave relationship, keep in mind that this is the master that you want to have. This is the master that gave his life for you. This is the master that his instructions to us are for our good and our eternal good. We want to, you would want to submit to a Lord like this. And when we do, it means we submit. It's not a decision, it's a devotion for a lifetime. That we surrender our lives uh, to him. And it includes, obviously, unreserved obedience unreserved obedience Jesus asks why do you call me Lord Lord and do not do the things which I say in other words that's that's incongruent that doesn't that doesn't work why do you say Lord Lord which means master ruler owner and do not do the things which I say you're not acknowledging me as Lord with that mindset you're just saying the term i want to ask you if you will to turn to two or look up two different passages with me to show a contrast in in attitude and and uh, a, an understanding of what lordship means the first one is in acts chapter 10 acts chapter 10 acts chapter 10 the setting is uh, what happens in Acts chapter 10 is the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. Up until this point, the gospel had been spread primarily or pretty much exclusively to the Jews. Even the apostles thought when, when Jesus gave the marching orders to go into all the world and preach the gospel, they had in their minds at that point, go into all the world and preach to all the Jews about Jesus. But now there's a, now Peter's being sent to a Gentile, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And Peter is struggling with this. He's a Gentile, he's not a Jew. Well, God causes Peter to see this vision of the sheet full of animals, both clean and unclean, coming down from heaven. And here are the Lord's instructions Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Notice verses 13 and 14. A voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. The Lord goes on to say, Don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. Peter puts it all together. He understands that Gentiles are subjects of the gospel too. Gentiles need to hear the gospel and so he goes to see Cornelius, who has gathered his family and his household to hear what, what uh, Peter has to say. And it's the good news of Jesus. But look at this statement of Peter. 
Peter says, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. One person pointed out how that phrase doesn't work. You miss the idea of lordship when you say it, those three words together. Not so is not something that a slave says to the master. The master gives a command and the response of the servant is not, not so, Lord. It's either not so or it's Lord. And if it's Lord, you don't say not so. You get the point? But here's Peter and, and he's working through this vision and this is he's having to change his mindset here he's he's thinking only the jews are subjects of the gospel but he's being told to go share the gospel with the gentile and he by this divine instruction understands the point but many again have this mindset i know what the lord says not so lord not this isn't for me that's not a complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, is it? Watch this. Instead of Peter, let's look at the Apostle Paul. And please look with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Here Paul is telling about how he was converted to Christ in Jerusalem. He's giving this defense before a crowd in Jerusalem. And I want to read with you, uh, recalling his conversion... Uh, beginning with verse 1 of Acts chapter 22. He stands up before this mob and he says, Men and brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are all today. In other words, he's saying, I've been one of you from, from birth. Verse 4, I persecuted this way, speaking of Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears, bears me witness and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there uh, to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's talking about how zealous he was as a Jew, and he believed that it was the will of God for him to persecute Christians. He viewed Christ as an imposter. He viewed Christians as being uh, deceived and, and spreading dangerous doctrine. And so his intent is to destroy the name of Christ and destroy Christians. And he's very zealous for that, even traveling afar to Damascus to find Christians and bring them back bound to Jerusalem. Verse 6, It happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you have a red letter of edition of the Bible, you'll see that's Jesus speaking to him. So I answered and said, Who are you, Lord? Lord, at this point, uh, may be a term of respect. Who are you, Lord? Jesus identifies himself. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Then Paul informs the crowd, 
Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. The Lord sends Ananias to, to Saul to tell him, number one, that, that God has, has a mission for Saul, who would become Paul. The mission to, to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. But he also comes to tell him that you need to become a Christian. Instead of trying to destroy Christianity, you need to be identified as a Christian. You need to become a Christ follower. And so he says to him, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord. But I want you to note a a statement that I highlighted for you. Contrasted with what Peter said when he saw this vision. He rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Again, that's, that's a contradiction of terms. You can't say not so if you're talking to the Lord. But here is Saul who has been going one direction, the wrong direction, thinking it to be the will of God to destroy Christianity, and now he's confronted by the risen Christ, and he humbles himself to the point where he asks this question, What shall I do, Lord? Folks, when he asks that question, he's in a position to receive the truth. He's in a position to to not only hear the truth, but he's in the right mindset to obey the the instructions of the Lord. I see him essentially waving the white flag. (laughs) I surrender. Uh, I realize who you are now, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You are Lord. And so I surrender. I was going the wrong direction. So now I'm asking, what shall I do? And folks, when you and I get to the point in our lives when we wave the white flag and surrender and we say, Lord, I've been going my direction. I've been headed in the wrong direction way too long. So now I am penitent and I'm asking you in all humility, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Speak, Lord, quote Samuel, your servant hears. Tell me, instruct, and and I will obey. When we come to the point in our lives when that's, that's the question on our hearts, we're in a position to receive the truth and to surrender to that truth. And folks, here's one major component of the truth. It's going to be an answer to what shall I do, Lord? And that is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Before we see any instructions from Jesus, from his word, we need to understand that. Jesus is Lord. And so I must submit my life uh, to to his will. Now watch this in Philippians chapter 2. This is on the heels of Paul giving that beautiful 
passage about the humiliation of Christ. Though he was in the very form of God, he humbled himself and became in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, became a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death and even the death on the cross. He humbled himself to fulfill the will of God. But then Paul completes it with this by inspiration. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, one day, one day, every person who is alive and has lived will say, Jesus is Lord. When Jesus returns, every tongue's going to confess that truth, that Jesus is Lord. But for the Christian, or for those who would submit their lives to Christ, that great confession is an everyday reality. It begins when we become Christians. Just like Saul, who was headed in the wrong way and finally surrendered and said, What shall I do, Lord? And he was told, for one thing, acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and being penitent of your sins, he's, said, he's told, Arise and be baptized, every one of, of well, he's told, uh, I just quoted it, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. And for him to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord meant that he would humble himself and be baptized, be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But it's not that one-time decision, folks. It's a lifetime of that decision, of that devotion. That we go forth from the waters of baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, and that new life is lived under the Lordship of Christ. That in all of our ways, we acknowledge Him. In our private lives, in our public lives, He is Lord. Command and I will obey. He is Lord. So really the issue is bow now or bow later. To bow now to the Lordship of Jesus means salvation. To bow later when Jesus returns, means condemnation. But it's a foundational truth of, of our faith. Jesus is Lord. And so it begs this question. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who sits on the throne of your heart? Have you acknowledged the Lordship of Christ in your life? If not... Why not make those steps today? It may mean responding to the gospel as, as Saul was instructed to do. Or it may mean removing self from the throne of your hearts and putting Christ back on that throne. If, there are, if we can pray with you to that end, or if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.